Welcome to The Great Awakening. I'm your host, Josh Dawes. Today on the show, I am sitting down with my good friend, Andrew Walker, uh, to discuss um, Christian uh, political engagement, what that should look like, how, what obligations do we have, what, um, how should we think through that, what role does uh, evangelism play in our political engagement. It's a great conversation. Uh, if you're unfamiliar with Andrew, he is an associate professor of ethics and apologetics at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary up in Louisville, Kentucky. He is the managing editor for World Opinions, where uh, they've just constantly putting out uh, great content, um, very helpful editorials. And um, yeah, this is a, a fun conversation I've been uh, looking forward to having for some time. Uh, Andrew's just a really clear thinker and um, helps um, the church uh, think through these issues uh, really well, I think. So without any further ado, let's jump right into my conversation with Andrew. Hey, Andrew, thanks for joining me. Hey, Josh, man. Uh, good to be with you. Yeah, thanks. Um, you know, we are in a election year. We got the midterms coming up. We've, and after that, you know, presidential campaigns are going to kick into full swing. So yeah. thought it'd be a great time to get you on to talk about uh, how Christians should think about political engagement. Um, I think you saw, everybody saw the, uh, the Christian Christianity Today article last week, uh, kind of, um, I don't know, pitting family discipleship against being involved in your local school board yeah, elections, which don't run for school board piece. Yeah, it's such a weird false choice. Um, why not both? Um, sure. But yeah, it started a lot of conversation. So um, wanted to bring you on. What? How should we think about political engagement? What is like as Christians living in a democratic republic where we have the privilege to vote? What is our bare minimum obligation? as far as politics go? I, I, so there's so many different places to begin. Um, and, and feel free to cut me off and ask additional follow-ups wherever you think sure. could be helpful. So I'll just begin kind of at the most abstract level. And I think that means to reconceptualize what it means to be political to begin with. So, you know, we live in a culture where like extreme polarization that you have Fox News or MSNBC. It's almost kind of like mm -hmm. the the Pauline are you of are you of Paul or are you of Cephas right. type of type of like bifurcation. Right. And I, I think we think of politics in terms of punditry and owning the libs or owning the cons. And I want to dial back from that and actually start at a more foundational level, and that's to go to Aristotle. And, and please hear me, I'm not trying to like implant or transpose Aristotle onto scripture. Um, but I think Aristotle asks a right question that I think Christians can draft off of for us to think about the political enterprise itself. And so sure. um, for, for Aristotle, it's a question of politics is about how to order our lives together. Um, so he's obviously not a Christian. He's a pagan philosopher. So he's going to have certain presuppositions about the nature of humanity, uh, the nature of society. I think really importantly, um, presuppositions about what is actually 
possible or attainable in -hmm. a society. And so that's kind of an Aristotelian question and framework. As Christians, we're going to answer those in ways that someone like Aristotle would not. Um, But the question or the, the overarching umbrella of how do we order our lives together, I think is, is fundamentally where we'd want to begin. Um, because I see politics, um, in one sense being Christian in the sense that we're thinking Christianly about politics, Uh but at the same time, if Christians do politics, as far as I understand it, I don't think it's going to result in like this utopic society. In fact, that society is more or less I'm going to be a society where all people, whether they're Christians or not, are going to be able to mutually benefit and enjoy and flourish in that society. So how do we order our lives together? That means for Christians, that's a question of creation order. So going to Genesis chapter one, what are those institutions God places within the fabric of creation that we have not just a... um, it's not just that it's important. I would say that it's necessary for us to acknowledge and, and to then live in accordance with. And so, I mean, listen, this is an issue that theologians have spent thousands of pages and thousands of years wrestling with. But for the, you know, the broadest possible kind of overview, you think of these categories as um, the family, the idea of human dignity, um, the idea of Genesis speaking about the fact that creation order itself is orderly, that it's not chaotic. Uh, and so for us as Christians, it means we want to bear witness in this age to those institutions of creation order that are necessary for all people to thrive. Now, we don't stay in Genesis chapter one. We head over to Genesis chapter three. Um, where the fall kicks in. And so that means we have to do a politics constrained by the reality of sin, constrained by the reality of fallenness, um, constrained by the reality of imperfectibility. Um, that means we, we as Christians cannot expect to get more out of the political order than what the order can give us mm-hmm. when taking into account the reality of sin. So, um, you know, in many ways, a Christian politics is having to militate against both like extreme dystopia that says, well, everything's going to hell in a handbasket. It's just rearranging deck chairs and the Titanic. So who cares? Uh, That's one extreme. The other extreme is kind of um, perhaps uh, a, a, a muscular triumphalism that says we can totally overwhelm uh, the aspects of society and dominate and just kind of have Christian hegemony. And that's kind mm-hmm. of on the more post-mill side. Uh, and listen, I would love to be post-mill at <laughs> the level <laughs> of my like inner core. Yep. And I, I think the post-mills, you know, I count them generally as, as allies that I'm willing to link arms with. I just think that there can be um, a reality of kind of over-realized eschatology mm-hmm. in, in their aspirations. At the same time, we don't want to get into the underrealized eschatology. Yeah. So I think that means, uh, you know, I'm going to absolutely pulverize this phrase after I say it, but like the phrase faithful presence, <laughs> um, I think 
you know, there's actually something to that. Mm-hmm. I just think we shouldn't practice how the proponents of faithful presence <laughs> frame the issue up, you know? Right. Because faithful presence basically means stand on the sidelines and be really, really nice and mm-hmm. do nothing that might upset someone who is in a place of authority. So yeah. I, I like the the idea of like faithful, active engagement, faithful, mm-hmm. active presence, which means uh, we can potentially partner with non-Christians who understand correct things in true ways, even right. if they're, they're, they're non-Christians. I mean, that's where a doctrine of natural law comes in. Mm-hmm. Um, at the same time, uh, it means that if we go back to creation order, Genesis chapter one, ideas like truth, ideas like family, ideas like the fact that human beings are fixed persons with natures, that maleness and femaleness actually are concrete fixed realities. Mm-hmm. It means that we're going to find ourselves in some places of contradiction to the ambient culture and having to live within that reality as well. And so I think the beauty of a Christian political ethic is that it actually can fit and adapt and adjust to every single political order that it finds itself in. So it's a, it's a, it's a system that can work where you have an American colonial context that's being influenced by Christianity. And even, you know, there are imperfect realities built into the American experiment with mm-hmm. slavery and those types of issues. So there's still imperfectibility, another one of those examples. Uh, but then also, you know, we can go to a place like modern day China where we can simultaneously say that what is going on politically is atrocious. It's tyrannical. Um, Christians ought to stand against uh, the CCP and its, you know, tyrannical rule in society, Mm -hmm. which are pulverizing Christians and Christian churches. Uh, But at the same time, I have I have students in my classes from China and they will say it would be great to have religious liberty. It would be really great to be able to, to have real representation in government. And so that means to me, like I often hear like a lot of Western Christians saying really stupid things like, well, we shouldn't contend for our rights because Jesus didn't fight for his rights. Yeah. And that just sounds so sanctimonious and disconnected. And quite Mm -hmm. frankly, I hate to use the term privilege. Right. um, (laughs) But it's so utterly privileged to make a statement like that because Western privilege, right? Exactly. Because you're standing to benefit from a political order that you actually did nothing to Mm -hmm. help create. Meanwhile, you have Christians overseas who are who would who would die to have the liberties that you have as an American Christian, but who at the same time are crapping on those liberties because you've been taught that asserting any type of rights mm-hmm. is unchristian, and that's just asinine right. as well. So well, I mean, listen, I'll our stop neighbors here have rights. So much more to say, but yeah, yeah, well, our neighbors have those same rights. So in fighting for our rights or exerting our rights, we are, well, I, you know. Yeah, no, I mean, that goes back to the question of creation ordinances, right? So mm-hmm. the notion of creation ordinances is grounded in the reality of the fact that God creates and orders reality. One of the implications of that is the fact that we are made in God's image. All human beings, Christian and non-Christian, they have certain aspects about their faculties, such as reason, 
deliberation, the power of choice, the power of self-constitution that exist within all persons, uh, regardless of their Christians or not. And so that means that uh, they have an equal stake and equal share in participating in political society. Um, you know, I, I'm sure we might get to the Christian nationalism discussion at some point in this. Uh, but in kind of my view on Genesis chapter 9 and the Noahic Covenant, which kind of looms really heavily in my political theology, uh, it's not correct theological belief that is what makes someone uh, properly able to participate in society. It's mm -hmm. the fact that they are human beings who have been endowed with certain creational realities that they were designed to enjoy by their creator. And so when you get to these issues of rights, whether you religious liberty rights, free speech rights, uh, the right to marry, but within the confines of maleness and femaleness, obviously, mm -hmm. uh, those individuals have rights to that because they're human beings, not because they're American. It's a natural mm -hmm. right. And so when I defend the rights of Christians in an American context, I am defending the rights of Jews necessarily, because um, I do think, again, not to transpose kind of American individual rights into the Bible, but understanding how the Bible speaks about creation, I, I, I do think that there is this universality of rights within individuals that governments have a duty to recognize mm -hmm. um, and not trying to set themselves up as the definers or arbiters of what those rights are. And so that's why we all have a stake in this together. And so when people raise like the whole question about Christian politics and say, well, it's just about self-seeking privilege for you Christians. You want to take America back. Um, my response to all of that is, well, if I actually got the power that I think Christians would, would desire to have politically, I actually think it's going to stand to benefit people in a maximal degree yeah. because a Christian politics isn't going to say, oh, well, you're a Muslim, you're Jewish. Uh, well, then you're therefore deprived of certain things. Mm -hmm. Rather, it's a recognition that, oh, well, you're a human. Mm -hmm. um, and so you, you deserve these certain things and these certain protections. Uh, and then the, the, the beauty of the Christian political ethic, and, and maybe we'll kind of conclude with this question here, is that there is a stable, objective, universal, and intelligible principle of morality to protect those rights. Um, one of the examples I give in class all the time, and it's, it's in the book I'm writing right now, is after the UN Declaration on Human Rights was drafted in 1948, uh, those in the drafting committee came out of the drafting committee room and were talking to reporters. And uh, I forget what the question was to the drafting committee members, but one of the members replied to the press, we're agreed on the, on, on the nature of these rights. Just don't ask us why. <laughs> and it, it's just one of those moments where you come across like, oh my gosh, okay, well, this is, this is actually intellectually honest in, in saying, if you're a non-Christian, how do you ground a doctrine of human rights? Mm -hmm. um, but yet everyone understands that there are some baseline foundational political realities necessary for stable civil order. And Christians actually are the ones who can sit back and say, yeah, 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 those, those rights 
that you think just come from nowhere, that just come out of thin air, um, you're right that you think those, those rights exist. We actually have foundation um, for where they originate. And that's yeah. in fact, God is a creator and that God reveals himself and Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Right. And so that's, that's, that's for our listening, listeners who may not you know, be familiar with natural law, that's basically the idea, correct? That, that God has written the, his law in nature. We can you know, discern it uh, through reason. Um, you know, this isn't my area of expertise. I'm yeah, sure. still new to this. I mean, the, that- yeah, no doubt. So there's more or less uh, the, the simplest definition of natural law would be Christians believe that there is uh, an objective moral order that rational beings can partake in and understand and fulfill certain moral goods, even if mm-hmm. they don't have a full explanation of where those goods come from. Um, that there is, that Paul talks about in Romans chapter 2, there is a law written on the heart mm-hmm. that conscience bears witness to. Um, and so a lot of times, for I think for a Christian, you, you know, this is where the apologetical aspect of Christian politics comes in is to say, um, well, no, all of those things that you think are really, really good about uh, justice for the oppressed. Mm-hmm. Um, I affirm that instinct and that desire to see uh, rectification of, of injustice and wrong. Um, let me tell you where those longings originate, why a loving God implanted that law on your heart. And how really all of those longings are a shadow for a longing of ultimate justice. I mean, this is where the mm-hmm. gospel really gets practical, tied to political order. Mm-hmm. Um, justice, I mean, so if, if politics is about arranging our life together, that means achieving a state of equilibrium, a state of affairs where things are ordered as they ought to be. Um, that means justice is present. Justice is again, where affairs are rightly ordered. There's no mm-hmm. injustice. There's no imbalance um, in, in, the state, in the state of the world. And we all long for that. Every single human being longs um, for a sense of rectitude. Mm-hmm. And I think that is a shadow of the fact that every human being living post-Genesis 3 understands that there's this cosmic debt we owe the universe in this generic, bland sense that Christianity particularizes and says, well, no, this, this universal longing becomes incarnational in the person of Jesus. Um, and so, you know, you go to, uh, I, if you've ever been to Israel, the, the Yad Vashim uh, Holocaust Memorial, like you go there and it's beautiful because they're trying to pay tribute to victims of the Holocaust. Um, but there's a sense in which, because, you know, they, they don't know who Christ is, there's this sense of like still universal longing for the satisfaction of justice. Mm-hmm. That we're still now 70 years post-World War II or post-Holocaust, and there's still that like, that it, it's unaccounted for at the, at the level of like the cosmic sense of imbalance yeah. and the scales mm-hmm. of justice. And that just kind of Christian, visceral longing say, for it. Yeah. And as a Christian, I can say, you know, at the end of history, 
all of those wrongs are going to be put to rights. Mm-hmm. And every one of those evildoers is going to get their just desserts in the form of punishment if they don't repent. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. That, um, you know, if, until then, we're, we are to engage in, in politics to bring about, you know, what, as close as we can to a just society yeah. here and now. And it seems to me that evangelicals have kind of lost the plot, maybe, as to what, why we engage in politics. Um, James Wood talks about how this kind of middle way um, ism that seeks to kind of um, reduce offense to maximize openness to the gospel that we've kind of applied to politics. And I think, you know, looking back at my own, you know, political journey in, in 2016 being staunchly never Trump, largely in part because I, you know, that I was worried about how that would hurt the church's witness. Is that a, is that a good way to think about politics? Is it, does, should we consider evangelism while we're making our political decisions? On the one hand, yeah, because I, I think there's no justification in scripture that I can see of being needlessly offensive. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, I, I do think that there are pictures in scripture of, I, I, I say that, I don't know if this is the best word or not, there's, there's harsh um, language used in scripture, uh, especially the Pharisees. And I, and I don't think that when Jesus is addressing the Pharisees, he's addressing Pharisaism as a, as a strictly religious reality. I think he's addressing stridency more general. I mean, you can be a Pharisee in my opinion and not be religious. Mm-hmm. And that, that, that's a kind of a whole side, side conversation to have. So I, I think we shouldn't be needlessly offensive. And in numerous places in Scripture, and they're they're kind of uh, statements made on on the aside, but numerous places in the New Testament where it says like to to do good to outsiders, let your speech be seasoned with salt, be gracious in your speech. Um, so again, don't be needlessly offensive, but at the same time recognize that in a fallen age, we shouldn't live with the assumption that nice inoffensive speech is going to remove us from the crucible of conflict. Mm-hmm. Uh, I will often talk about, you know, the word winsome comes up and I've made plenty of my criticisms of, of the winsome word. Uh, but there was one, there, there was no one more winsome than Christ and he was still crucified. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, we are to follow in the image of our savior. Uh, so that means that we should pursue a non-instrumental concern for mannerliness, truthfulness, and even saying something that could come across as strongly worded, uh, and, and, and knowing that we're to follow Christ because we're to follow Christ, that there isn't, there isn't a, a byproduct that we gain apart from the fact that we are just called to follow Christ. At the same time, as we follow Christ, he says, if they persecute you, they're going to persecute me. Uh, 
Paul talks about in Second Timothy, if you desire to live a godly life in Christ, you will be persecuted. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, we should have a care about what we say to the outside, um, but we shouldn't allow that to be what determines whether we speak or not speak. Mm-hmm. So if we are not speaking, that's a degree of cowardliness. But if we're speaking the wrong way, that can be a degree of brashness as well. I mean, I mean, right. if you disagree with me, if you think I'm if I'm wrong anywhere. Yeah, no, I, it seems right to me. Uh, one of the things I've been thinking about um, and writing a bit um, on the side is the, the idea that our our reluctance to talk about things or even to like signal like who we may be voting for in you know our neighborhoods in our communities you know slapping a a a bumper sticker on the car or a yard sign the the reluctance to signify to signal that hey i i think differently um as christians you know in a in an attempt to kind of you know build those relational evangelism uh relationships where we can you know take out, you know, make sure we're not offending anyone Yeah, has inadvertently contributed to the polarization we're seeing in the country because we're afraid to, to have that people. Uh, I forget the philosopher, but I just recently learned about the, the spiral of silence. Have you heard about this? <laughs> it's, uh, it's the idea that as, um, as you as people are are quiet about something because they assume that you know the people they're with believe one way so they they keep their beliefs to themselves that cements the the other people in thinking that that is the way everybody believes and so it just starts this downward spiral where we're you know the the this group over here feels like they can't say anything because everybody's against them when at the start it probably wasn't you know we were and so I think um, I think the kind of like bowling uh, alone kind of thing, those yeah. those, you know, com- local community um, interactions we used to have with people that disagree with us, those yeah. options are kind of gone now. Well, yeah. And, and what I was thinking about here is I think we had the luxury of being more quiet or quieter when we were kind of operating in what maybe Aaron Rand talks about, like the neutral world or the positive world, where there's yeah. at least at least a baseline moral foundation that says, mm-hmm. hey, we're all kind of operating from the same presuppositions about society. I don't think that we're operating from the same presuppositions in society anymore whatsoever, which on right. the one hand can incline you to be more silent. Mm-hmm. Um, but to go back to my original comments about politics, meaning ordering our life together. And maybe this is, I, I, I confess, this is my personality coming out. I'm the type of personality that like wants to run towards worldview conflict with individuals, not because I'm, I'm looking to be combative necessarily, mm-hmm. but because like I, I want to live a fully integrated life. I want to know where the inconsistency inconsistencies are in my worldview. I want to know um, if I'm being intellectually dishonest somewhere, if I haven't thought something fully through, I want those to be challenged. 
because I do yeah. want to live a fully integrated life. Um, and so when I think about kind of mainstream progressive secularism today, like I genuinely find the worldview uh, metaphysically ludicrous and insane. I mean, I don't know of a better way to describe the worldview that is dominating our society. Yeah. Um, and so like I, I, I'm the type of personality that wants to have that conversation um, when someone is talking about the language of justice and rights. Like I want to say, okay, well, hold on a second. I agree on justice and rights. What do you mean by that? Because mm -hmm. I need a full explanation on where your understanding of rights starts and stops. And if it starts and stops merely with individual preference and self-autonomy, um, you don't even believe that yourself either, because you wouldn't say that someone has a right to uh, to steal, right? There's no human right to theft. So mm -hmm. where where's the line you're going to draw? So I, I think, if anything, the moment that we're in is challenging to a lot of Christians because the veneer of of a former Christendom is stripping away. Mm -hmm. And so all of those really deep, divergent, incompatible worldviews are surfacing to the top, and we actually have to state what it is we believe. Yeah. Um, and so that, that, I mean, that is a conflict-prone uh, moment. And, yeah. you know, I, I toggle in the, in, in kind of the extremes of not everyone is called to the fray, so to speak. Um, I don't think every Christian needs to be a culture warrior. I don't think every Christian needs to be um, spending their free time reading all the books, you know, that I have on my, on my shelf behind me. But mm -hmm. there does need to be uh, at least a baseline Christian discipleship where on those creational ordinances, such as, let's just call them life, marriage, um, gender, notions of, of morality, objective existence, Christians do need to have some answer when asked about mm -hmm. those. And yeah. that's inherently conflict-prone. And I don't know of a way out of that apart from just mass conversion, where we, then we, we therefore then return that context where we all share those same moral presuppositions. Yeah. So, I mean, it's really challenging, and I won't pretend that that this won't put people in a lot of awkward positions. Um, but it does give us a chance to to live, uh, I think, transparently. Like I actually, I have been in conversations with non Christians, and when we've actually unearthed how much we disagree. And how irreconcilable our worldviews are, there's actually, oddly enough, some type of civility that kicks in because we realize we're not playing on the on the plane of platitudes. Mm -hmm. um, that we're kind of like, yeah, we basically have nothing in common except for the fact that we are both believing in the in the necessity of oxygen to sustain us. <laughs> and maybe that we're not going to solve these disputes uh, at at the uh, you know with with guns pointed at each other. That deliberative democracy might be <laughs> the, the very benchmark baseline that we have. Uh, there's something to be said for just like actually unearthing differences. Uh, I, I, I'm kind of thinking here of the Apostle Paul in Acts 17 when he goes to Mars Hill. And on the one hand, you know, he says, uh, you, you, you know, you have this altar to an unknown God. Like, what is he doing there? He's actually 
calling out the stark contrasts of what he's about to say as far as the resurrection versus what the pagans say, which is mm. there's this agnostic deity, this spirit God that they're just worshiping. And Paul comes along and rather than, you know, I don't know if Paul is offensive, that's the right term or not, but Paul comes along and like appeals to that instinct for worship and says, yeah, Jesus, Jesus is actually the very archetype and fulfillment of what you're longing for. Mm-hmm. And so I, I, I just think, you know, there could be moments for, for genuine conversation about worldview differences that get people thinking uh, about what it is they believe. I was just reading uh, about C.S. Lewis this summer and, you know, C.S. Lewis came to faith because he was confronted with the fact that the Christian gospel gave expression to all of the longings that he felt, but couldn't quite. Mm-hmm. And yeah. I think a Christian's understanding of politics actually does something to address those longings for justice, that longing for social tranquility that all human beings have. Christians actually have a, a coherent, consistent case for why that is. Yeah. And that's one of the things that gives me a ton of hope right now. I mean, yeah. there's plenty of black pills, but it is, you know, as, as our society runs headlong into this new secular woke religion, it's going to come up empty. You're going to yeah. have people washed up against the rocks of this false religion that, you know, are need um, need what Christ offers. And, you know, I think the church can be there. Yeah. Um, well, you know, I mean, the truth and with comfort and, you know, I mean, to that same point, uh, with the don't run for school board article, mm-hmm. Christianity today, I, I think one of the more insidious aspects of that article is at the exact moment where secular ideology is chewing and spitting out young, impressionable persons mm-hmm. caught up in the complete insanity of gender ideology. For Christians to then say, oh, well, don't get your hands dirty in trying to run for school board or exert any type of authority. I mean, honestly, I just, I fundamentally see that as abdicating our call mm-hmm. to love our neighbor. Yeah. Um, to love our neighbor means not only to speak kindly to them, to seek their benefit. It also means to seek the conditions in their society where their thriving can be optimized. Yeah. And so if there are nefarious ideologies that are being being peddled by politically correct um, actors in society that are, I mean, quite frankly, doing damage to kids. I talked to some kids mm-hmm. a couple weeks ago and it, I was, I was so emboldened and upset by what our culture is doing to kids right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, if anything, it reinvigorated my concern for vigilance in the culture. Yeah. Um, I, I think so many, I think a lot of pastors too are kind of unaware of how much that is influencing the younger oh, generations too. Cause I, I think there's this reluctance to, address this because it seems like oh we're sitting inside of our holy huddle and throwing rocks at the sinners on the outside 
mm-hmm. without recognizing how much influence that is just seeping into everything we consume and you know the places our younger generations are working and everything it's it's really scary out there um what advice would you have for pastors who are how can how can pastors disciple church members to think through these things um without being labeled christian nationalists because i know that that's a big fear among pastors oh we're not like those churches we don't want to be that so there's this i think this tendency to fall back we're just going to focus on the gospel and the gospel's enough and you know if we if we drift into anything else we're christian nationalists and we don't want to be that yeah no I, i hear that um i mean i would just begin with what the pastors ought to love most which is the gospel and the question I think we want to ask ourselves to, to reframe it a little bit here, your question. Are there ripple effects to the gospel? That's, that's what I would want to wrestle with. So, yeah. you know, I will often say in my classes, um, you know, Christians want to like transform the culture at like the top down. We think we, we think we can kind of like a, like a ventriloquist puppet, like pull the strings, transform the culture. I think of culture as conscience transformation. So as pastors preach the word faithfully and not necessarily preaching politics, qua politics, but preaching those issues that scripture addresses headlong, marriage, life, what is a man, what is a woman, uh, that gospel is going to shape and transform those people's minds which means there can be ripple effects as far as the implications of those transformed consciences working themselves out in culture. Mm. And so rather than seeing pastors role as like transforming political orders, I would say, Hey, you know, as a Baptist, we've put a lot of um, focus on the local congregation what you can do is to change the culture of your congregation. Your congregation can help affect the culture outside the congregational life as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, the gospel is the gospel is a political message. Um, the statement that Jesus is Lord means that any other type of authority that would assert itself as a type of Lord is a false Lord. And that all ideologies, all thoughts, all things have to be captive, caught captive um, to, to Christ. Mm-hmm. And so I think for pastors, uh, yeah, it, it doesn't mean that you are, I mean, l- listen, there are a lot of like really cringe, like religious right moments that mm-hmm. we can look to. Uh, just recently, I think... Um, like the Lieutenant Governor of Texas said like that the Bible was uh inspired or I'm sorry, that the Constitution was yeah. inspired by God. Uh yeah. Michael Flynn, one of Trump's former NSA advisors, um, said that pastors need to be preaching the Bible and the Constitution. Like literally he said that. That's cringe. Mm-hmm. I mean, I say that as a devoutly conservative Christian, that's cringe. No, a pastor should not be getting up and preaching the Constitution. Yeah. Um, the Bible stands 
<laughs> over and above Constitution. So again, if you can, as a pastor, decouple what is political from what is punditry, and then reconceptualize that I am here to disciple my people, to live a life of human flourishing under the reign of Christ, that they're discipled, the disciples in my church are then called to go out into their communities to reflect the righteousness of Christ in all aspects of life, to be the salt and light that we're called to be in Scripture. I mean, on the one hand, that is being political. Uh, and, you know, one of my favorite stories, um, one of my colleagues told me, and you can't like have automatic proof of correlation as causation here. But um, when you go and look at Wilberforce helping to get the slave trade abolished in England, what you'll notice is not only was he there making the arguments as a Christian, um, but the number of members of parliament who were Christians numerically increased hmm. in the time of Wilberforce's own tenure, which means there were a lot of just potentially normie Christians who ran for parliament, one, had those consciences transformed and then voted in accordance with those consciences and then helped abolish and eradicate a human evil. Yeah. Uh, if that's being political, amen. And I'd also say this, <laughs> is I, I feel like sometimes we slap the label political on anything that like might upset the left. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I would say that, you know, you can't determine what you're going to preach and say by whether progressives and secularists are going to like it or not. It doesn't right. matter how kind you are, how nice you are. Um, if you stand up in a pulpit and you happen to be going through Genesis 1 and 2 or Ephesians chapter 5 or, or <laughs> basically anywhere the marriage is mentioned in Scripture, right. and you say that marriage is exclusively the union of one man and one woman, well, guess what? You've just been political by the mm -hmm. categories of our world. But let's be very clear, what our world addresses as political and, and slaps the label political on are actually deeply, at their subterranean level, theological issues. So rather than saying, am I being political, I think a pastor ought to say, am I being properly biblical? Am I being orthodox? And if I am, is that going to have a repercussion as far as what my message is going to be and what I'm telling my people to do? Yeah. Because if, if, that's, if that's what gets you in trouble for being political, then just embrace getting in trouble. Yeah. You know, like I, I, think, I think a lot of Christians sometimes just need to get a little, I mean, they need to get beat up sometimes. They need to be called something that they don't want to be called because you realize, okay, well, they called me something I don't like and I survived. Mm -hmm. So what? That kind yeah. of gives you a little bit of a hopeful red pill, so to speak, that, yeah. You know, it doesn't matter what I do. Um, someone's going to not like it. I would rather be found faithful to Scripture in informing my people than being silent and not effectuating really any change in my outside culture. And and let me just say this, and then I will really shut up. Um, I notice sometimes that 
the the hesitance to speak and the red the reticence to speak. It's done under the idea that um, we might actually change someone's mind to agree with us if we're more constrained in our comments. Mm-hmm. Um, I was recently, I, I very recently listened to something where uh, it was a Christian talking to a very kind of like mainline mainstream reporter. And this Christian had an opportunity to say something profoundly true that would have gotten this individual in trouble with this reporter. But this Christian didn't say anything. And it's like, okay, well, I'm not saying you had to be needlessly confrontational, Mm -hmm. but you did have an opportunity to say something true and you chose not to. And to what end did that accomplish? So you actually didn't accomplish the very thing that you're telling others to do and telling them to be silent, which is to bring about conversion because of inoffensiveness. Yeah. I just don't see that. But I always want to ask the per- the question now of like, to what end are you either speaking or not speaking? And are you being naive in, in to what end you think you're speaking or not speaking? And listen, I can be wrong about that as well. Um, I'm not saying that I've got that this perfectly figured out. Um, but I don't want, I don't want what I say fundamentally to be determined by whether someone is going to like me or not. Yeah. Um, I want what I say to be determined by whether it corresponds to what is true. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and, I, you know, as a, a parent, you have to think about your kids are watching and they're going to have a much harder time than we are apart from, you know, a huge revival and, a, you know, restoration of some of the things we've lost in society. You know, what kind of example are we setting for them? Uh, you know, I think about the faithful presence. And again, like you were just saying, to what end? Like if you're not, you know, you can build inroads into secular places you can you know go up the corporate ladder to try and you know have this faithful presence but if you're not ever cashing that in if you're not you know acting as a salt and light and preservative what's the point yeah no that's so well said i mean i can't think of a single person who would embody the faithful presence type model where you know you've 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 found yourself in a mainstream institution and you get to represent Christ, that actually brought about the type of institutional or cultural transformation Mm -hmm. that the faithful presence model is premised upon. And in fact, I mean, just let me just name one in particular. Um, Someone like Michael Gerson, who's a reporter at the Washington Post. He's a Wheaton graduate. He's written books about the role of Christians in politics, extremely high-level advisor and speechwriter to President Bush. And this June, he writes an editorial coming out in defense of pride parades. And this is one of those examples where okay, you've had the Christian ascend to the elitist levels of culture. Mm-hmm. And they've been present. But how faithful have they been present? Yeah. And in fact, I think it's evidence that he's been evangelized and yep. converted more than he's done any type of evangelizing and converting himself. 
Yeah. And so again, the, 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 we have to find a middle way here. It's not, I mean, to come back to Aristotle a little bit, uh, it's, it's finding the golden mean between extremes. We don't need to be cowards, um, but we also should be brash and abrasive and pugilistic. Uh, there is something to be said for moderation and finding the golden mean that is truth under the conditions of calm and poise. And I, I just, I want to see more of that. A Christian who says, hey, this is what I believe about marriage. This is what I believe about life. This is what I believe about male and female. I think I have really good reasons for believing what I believe. I'm happy to discuss those reasons, um, but I'm not going to not speak about them uh, just because it might bring you a little bit of discomfort. And if you yeah. want to call me names, call me names, but we're going to have to have this discussion out. Mm -hmm. And I think that, you know, a Christian who will approach things and approach topics in that fashion is going to make an impact because we see that so little, you know, we, and I think too, we see so many people that are the, the pugilists, they want to fight, they're, yeah. they're itching for a scrap. And that causes a lot of us that are more moderate or reasonable to, you know, shy away because we don't want to be associated with that group of people. And yeah. I think that, you know, we, we really need to step into those situations, show a better way and um, really, you know, be bold. You know, yeah. our kids are watching, you know, let's, let's truly be faithful in this moment that we find ourselves in, which is yeah. not easy. Absolutely agree. Well, Andrew, I know uh, you are coming short on time, so I wanted to ask you our last question. Um, what has given you hope these days? Oh, man, good question. Yeah. Um, what has given me hope of late is uh, I, two things. Um, I have been convicted about my own kind of lackadaisical attitude towards the power of the gospel. Like I, I sometimes think that I can, you know, we, we can easily domesticate the gospel into just this phrase like gospel centered this gospel centered mm -hmm. that. And um, I've just been captured anew by Romans one, where it says the gospel is the power of God unto salvation, which means it's, it's a powerful regenerative work of God that is really outside of our control. And so all we can do is witness. We can speak truthfully, speak calmly, um, but it is the power of God. And so we should not be embarrassed by the gospel. Um, we should not uh, hold back from the gospel, but believe that this really is good news and us sharing it can bring about tremendous change. So that's kind of the top level thing that I feel like that has given me hope of late is just a, a renewed joy in the gospel. Two, uh, you know, my wife is a classical school, classical Christian school teacher here in Louisville. And just to see the explosive growth of classical Christian education all over the nation, um, to hear reports from my wife about like waiting lists at her school. Um, there's a publishing arm attached to her school as well, Memoria Press. And to see like the explosive growth 
of their publishing arm, whether for other classical Christian schools or for home schools or Christian co-ops. Um, I just think the classical Christian school movement is one of the most important things going today. And, you know, I just want to, you know, as a word of encouragement to anyone listening, if you can volunteer, volunteer time, resources, energy to help your local Christian, classical Christian school thrive, I just think that that's a wonderful place to, to devote some resources. to. That's awesome. Yeah. Couldn't agree more. That's uh that has been very encouraging. Just in our homeschool co-op, we've seen a, a huge growth. They have to, to add classes and teachers and stuff. So it's been there's there's a there's something happening that yeah. uh, people are kind of waking up and seeing what's going on and and wanting something yeah. better for their kids. Yeah, I mean to that end, I just think that there is. I mean with with the. I mean I think COVID was kind of the catalyst, and then COVID plus the exposure of the ideology taking place in public schools. Mm-hmm. Um, I just think that public schools um, are, have, have been getting uh, exposed of late. And I think we need to have more of those conversations. I know it's kind of a third rail in Christian communities, mm-hmm. um, but we, we need to have some honest conversations about the fact that what you and I learned in grade school uh, yeah. are, is not what's being taught today. And we're putting our kids in these environments. um, And is that, is that responsible parenting? Yeah. It's an important conversation that we'll have to revisit at some point. Uh, But I do thank you for uh, joining me, Andrew, and I hope you have a great day. That's our show for today. Big thanks to Andrew Walker for joining me to have this conversation. If you're not following him over at Twitter, come on, what is wrong with you? At Andrew T. Walk. He is a great thinker that will greatly improve your feed over there. Um, I'll also have some links in the show notes where you can find some of his other writings. Uh, Definitely go subscribe at World Opinions. They are doing great work and I'm constantly, uh, it's probably the the one publication I read religiously. It is uh, just constant source of uh, great editorial opinion pieces. Um, If you found this content helpful, um, share it with a friend. You know, this is uh, we're heading into uh, high gear in election season and then the presidential elections after. This is a, a conversation that um, we as Christians need to be having. We need to be thinking through what our responsibility is when it comes to political engagement. So um, go ahead and share that. Uh, if you're watching on YouTube, like and subscribe so you don't miss uh, future content. We have some great guests coming up that uh, you really want to be uh, subscribed so you can uh, see those. The um, if you're listening on Apple uh, or on podcast, uh, head over to Apple podcast, give us a rating and a review that really helps to get uh, the word out about the podcast. So I hope you're finding this helpful. Uh, if you have any feedback for me, I'm uh, also at Twitter at Josh Dawes. Uh, that's the best place to find me. Uh, my DMs are open. So please uh, send me a, send me a message. Let me know what you think of the show until next time. I will see you soon.